Beloved, please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Uh, we are in our uh, 77th uh, message on the book of Romans. So if you are uh, visiting with us uh, this morning, uh, and perhaps not from a Presbyterian background, I promise you we do not talk about predestination every week uh, at this church. Uh, we, in fact, uh, we come to it from time to time uh, in the Scripture, and so we want to proclaim the uh, whole counsel of God, and uh, we come to a doctrine that is often misunderstood, and uh, which is actually one of the most wonderful and glorious uh, doctrines in all of the Bible. And so I hope we'll see that uh, clearer this morning. Romans chapter 8. This morning we are in verses 29 and 30. I'll read 28 along with it. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 8, and beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified amen thus far the reading of god's word would you pray with me our fathers we come to this glorious passage once again in romans chapter 8 and particularly these verses which deal with your sovereign grace and love and the doctrine of predestination, uh, that you would help us to understand it more clearly, uh, that we would have that blessed assurance, knowing that you are with us and that you will never cast us off uh, when we are in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. How vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. We are redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness. Tis not for works that we have done, these all to him we owe, but he of his electing love salvation doth bestow. To thee, O Lord, alone is due all glory and renown. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Thou wast thyself our surety in God's redemption plan. In thee his grace was given us long ere the world began. Safe in the arms of sovereign love, we ever shall remain. Nor shall the rage of earth or hell make thy sure counsel vain. Not one of all the chosen race but shall to heaven attain. Here they will share abounding grace, and there with Jesus reign. This magnificent hymn celebrating the sovereign grace of God was written by the famous 18th century British hymn writer Augustus Toplady. The hymn is theology set to song. It's theology set to song. It's intended to underscore the very truth set forth in our text for this morning, namely... That salvation is a work of God and not of man. That salvation is monergistic and not, what? Synergistic. And that salvation is grounded in God's sovereign love for us 
and not our imperfect love for Him. Amen? Isn't that good news? It'd be really bad news if you came in here this morning thinking, I know that the standard is perfect love, and I know my love is imperfect for God. I'm in trouble. Maybe I'll sing a little louder this morning. Maybe somehow God's standard will change, knowing that it's not so. You see, this is good news, that salvation is grounded in God's sovereign love for us and not our imperfect love for Him. Safe in the arms of sovereign love, we ever shall remain. What an assuring, comforting, and hopeful word for Christians. God will lose none of His own. Top Lady's hymn is in many ways an echo of Romans chapter 8, and in particular, Romans 8, 28 through 30, verses that highlight God's predestinating love for unworthy sinners. Now, when it comes to verses 28 through 30, many approach them uh, in merely abstruse philosophical or theological terms, arguing, for instance, about the nature of free will. There's certainly a time and place for these discussions and debates especially in the seminary classroom. But here's the thing. Paul was not writing his letter to university professors or professional theologians. As I mentioned last week, and I will say it uh, again, and perhaps uh, again at another time, Paul was writing the book of Romans to ordinary Christians. Ordinary, mostly uneducated, first century believers in Rome. He was writing to suffering believers who needed reassurance that God loved them and that He would never let them go. He was writing to normal Christians whose faith sometimes wavered and who needed to be reminded that God's grip on them was an eternal one that their salvation was forever secure, and that nothing, absolutely nothing, as this chapter says at the end, could separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How could Paul even say that at the end of Romans 8 if predestination is not, in fact, true? We are not embarrassed by the doctrine of predestination. We rejoice in it. Because it is our salvation. Without it, we are doomed. You see, from mankind's limited perspective, we live in a world of uncertainty. Nations rise and nations fall. Social order is deconstructed by widespread moral revolution. Faithful monarchs unexpectedly die and are succeeded by incredulous heirs. If we are honest, how is that for subtlety? If we are honest, all of this unsettles us and makes us wonder if anything is secure at all, including God's love, including our salvation. But God speaks to our doubts and fears with an unshakable word of promise. He tells us that those who are in Christ are no longer condemned 
but forgiven, Romans 8.1. He tells us that in Christ, the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. He tells us that we are no longer God's enemies, but His adopted sons who cry out, Abba, Father. And He tells us in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul teaches us that though creation groans and Christians groan and the Spirit groans within us, and the apostle tells us that these groanings are are mingled with hope. Again, not hope in ourselves, not hope in this world, not hope in the political system, but hope in God. Hope in His sovereign, electing grace in Christ. Last week, we camped out in verse 28, and we learned that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, all things work together for good. Not just some things, all things, even even the really difficult things, work for the believer's ultimate Good, by the providential, invisible hand of God. As it says in the Heidelberg Catechism, as Almighty God, He is able to do this. And as our loving Heavenly Father, He is willing to do this. God can work all things together for good because He's God. And He wants to do it for us because He's our Father. Now this display... The sovereignty of God is not limited to the providential working together of all things for good. No, it applies to more than divine providence. Indeed, God's sovereignty, His sovereignty also applies to a person's salvation. And dear ones, this is where we are introduced to the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine of predestination. If you're taking notes this morning, there are three points that I want us to see in this text. First of all, predestination is a biblical doctrine. Predestination is a biblical doctrine. It wasn't uh, conjured up uh, in the halls of Calvin's Geneva. It's a biblical doctrine. Number two, predestination is a comforting doctrine. Predestination is a comforting doctrine. Number three, predestination has a glorious aim. Predestination has a glorious aim. First of all, predestination is a biblical doctrine. Look with me again at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of or likeness of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, in order that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers. When God saved me in 1991, uh, it wasn't long uh, before I was introduced to the doctrine of divine predestination by some friends at RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. Let's just say I wasn't having it. I wasn't having it. Uh, It just didn't sit well with me. I thought, what about human freedom? How does predestination square with God's love? If predestination and election are true, then why bother to evangelize? I had all the questions. I was asking all the questions of my friends in, in RUF. Perhaps you've asked these questions yourself. 
But then, as friends of mine began to point me to Scripture, and then I went to a, a RUF retreat um, where they waterboarded me. No, I'm just kidding. I went to an RUF retreat where Michael Horton was speaking. And after he spoke, I had a conversation with him about the doctrine of predestination and election. And he said, if you would just read my book, which is entitled Putting Amazing Back into Grace, it might help you. Well, I read the book and I felt like I was converted again. It was overwhelming. It was like I had just missed it. And suddenly the Bible came alive with the sovereign love of God and salvation. Suddenly, my salvation was not a work of cooperation. It was a work of grace, period, full stop. I discovered that this doctrine was taught all over the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New. There was no denying it. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over salvation, and predestination is clearly taught in Scripture. Now, some in the world would say something like this, uh, those who do not believe the gospel or perhaps are what, what, what um, sociologists are now calling the nuns. They have no religion. They'll say things like this. Well, that's just a crazy doctrine. How can you believe that? And I say, excuse me, how can we believe in a sovereign God who is all-powerful, who created the world, and who is carrying out his purpose? How can we believe that? That seems believable. Look around. Look at the world. Look at all he has made. Look at his son who came into the world and died and rose again. These are plausible things that we believe. We don't have blind faith. Amen? We don't have blind faith. And these same people will say, hey, look, there's a man dressed like a woman who is actually a woman because they think they are, even though they have all the biological makeup of a man. This is the world in which we live where there's resistance to the truth of God, but an embracing of an unreasonable absurdity, like what's happening all around us in our culture in different ways. And so we come to this doctrine of predestination with humility, knowing the mysterious that is there. But we see it taught all over Scripture. We see it taught all over Scripture, and so we want to consider it this morning. But some might be thinking, Pastor John, uh, you have skipped over the word foreknew. You skip that, and uh, that word, it brings some qualification to predestination, and it teaches us something different than what you're saying. Well, we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with that. Indeed, this verse does say, for those whom he, that is God, foreknew, he also predestined. This means that God predestined those whom he foreknew, this this means, uh, some would say this, that this means that God predestined those whom he foreknew would believe in him and love him and do good works. That's what that means, Pastor. It means that he foreknew that we would love him and do good works and have faith in him, and then he predestined us when he saw that. In other words, God predestined them, God chose them based on a prior knowledge of their faith in him. Have you ever heard that before? Perhaps you believe it this morning. It's categorically wrong. When we think about all that we've learned from Romans thus far, this could be right. Why? Because mankind in his natural self is enslaved to sin and in bondage to Satan. 
in our natural and sinful condition, there is no spiritual life or health in us. Remember Romans 3, 11 and following. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This does not sound like people who are exercising faith on their own terms and of their own volition and God seeing that and then predestinating them unto everlasting life. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, it states that mankind's natural state is a condition of spiritual death. Not a head cold, but death. And that by nature, we are children of wrath. You see, the idea that God predestined sinners unto salvation based on a foreknowledge of faith and good works goes against everything the Bible teaches about salvation. We are not predestined by virtue of our own merits, by good works that God foreknows and then responds to. No, we are saved by grace alone. Not by works, lest any man should boast. So if that's the case, why does Paul mention foreknew here? Why does he mention foreknowledge? I mean, it's kind of stating the obvious, right? If God has decreed all things, then of course he knows what's going to happen. So why mention foreknew? Well, the word foreknow or foreknew communicates Um, something deeper than the fact that God knows what will happen in the future. Of course, he knows what's going to happen in the future. He ordained it. But there's something else here to consider. When the Scripture speaks of God's knowing or foreknowing his people, it is a knowing that conveys love. It is a knowing that conveys love. It is a knowledge rooted in divine affection and care for the elect. It's not just communicating that God knows the future. For example, in Genesis 18, 19, God says about Abraham, for I have known him. Some versions say chosen him. It's the same Hebrew word for known. I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. In Amos 3, 2, God says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God knows all the families of the earth. Like He knows about them. He created them. He's God. He he has infinite wisdom and He's omniscient. He knows about all the families of the earth. But He says in, in, in Amos 3, 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. This means you only have I loved. You only do I have this relationship with. In Hosea chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, it states, quote, But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. It was you who I knew, God says to his people. And then, of course, the familiar verse in Matthew seven twenty three. When Jesus hears the false believers at the judgment saying, But Lord, Lord, we, we did these things for you. And Christ says, Go away from me. I never what? Knew you. I never knew you. I was never in a relationship with you. 
The word know in Scripture conveys something deeper than a mere knowledge of someone. John Murray, uh, the late professor of systematic theology at Westminster, Philadelphia, explains it this way, quote, Many times in Scripture, the word know has a pregnant meaning which goes beyond that of mere cognition. It is used in a sense practically synonymous with love or to set regard upon, to know with peculiar interest, delight, affection, and action. Whom he foreknew, he writes, is equivalent to whom he foreloved. Whom he foreknew is equivalent to whom he foreloved. Therefore, when Paul writes in verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he is essentially saying, for those whom God foreloved, he also predestined. For those whom he forecherished, he also predestined. And of course, he cherishes those whom he chooses because he chooses them in his Son before the foundation of the world. It's not a choosing. It's not a predestination apart from Christ. It's one that happens in Christ, as we learn from Ephesians 1, and we'll see in a few minutes. So what do we learn about the relationship between foreknowledge and predestination? That God's sovereign choice is rooted in His infinite love. Predestination, therefore, is not some cold, detached, impersonal choice in eternity past. No, it's God's sovereign and mysterious plan of salvation for a select number of sinners which flows out of His eternal love. No one deserves it. Salvation is by grace alone, not by works, and predestination is essential to it. And we see this, again, in Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. If you have your Bibles, look with me at Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, which is one of the most powerful passages on God's sovereign, saving love in the Bible. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Notice that language? Set His love on you and chose you. That's the same kind of formula we have in Romans 8, 29. He foreknew and predestined. He set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, verse 8. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. O Lord, why me? Why did you set your saving, electing love on me? Because I love you. Why do you love me? Because I love you. Is it because of what I've done? No, certainly not that. Your life is full of sin. You've broken all my laws. You never love me perfectly, ever. And you never love your neighbor perfectly, ever. I do not love you because of your works. I don't love you because I've looked through the portals of time and seen you doing some good things and then chose you or predestinated you. No. 
I set my love and affection upon you because it was my good pleasure to do so. And I set my predestinating love upon you. And then in space and time, sent my son to accomplish redemption for you. You see, the Lord's purpose will be fulfilled for his glory and for our good. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 11, we have one of the clearest texts on predestination in the Bible. If you'd like to turn there, Ephesians 1, 3 through 11. As you're turning there, think of, think of the alternative. The alternative, if this is not true, is that somehow we have it within ourselves the moral ability to do some kind of a good work that then God responds to and saves us, which means that we actually are part of the formula for salvation, which means that actually if we've been a part of saving ourselves, we can be a part of what? Unsaving ourselves. But these things are not true. It's, it's what we see clearly laid out in Scripture here in Ephesians 1, 3 through 11 that are true. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, look here, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. Our text says so that we'll be conformed into the image of Christ. In love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been what? predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign. Amen. God is working out his saving purposes. And he is doing so in and through Christ. Beloved, this is central to the free gospel of grace. Without predestination, we are left to our own devices, in bondage to sin and guilt, and objects of God's wrath. Without predestination, there is no hope for anyone. In fact, I would argue, without predestination, there is no God. What kind of a God is not purposing all things for His own glory? If God is not sovereign, God is not God. But of course he is. He's the God who reigns over all. He's the sovereign God. 
If God, out of his infinite love, has not purposed to save sinners, then no sinners will be saved. But we know that God has purposed redemption for the undeserving, and he has purposed it in Christ. Jesus himself gives instruction on this concept of election and predestination. Look with me at John 6, 37 through 40. John 6, 37 through 40. Here, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. He doesn't say might. He doesn't say, I hope all those who the Father gave me will come to me. He says, all that the Father gives me will, shall come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What is the will of him who sent Jesus? To save sinners whom God, even before the foundation of the world, set his love and affection upon. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Look at verse 44 with me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John Stott helpfully explains, quote, Clearly a decision is involved in the process of becoming a Christian. But it is God's decision before it can be ours. It is God's decision before it can be ours. Look with me now at Acts 13, verses 44 through 48. A little sword drill going on this morning. Acts 13, 44 through 48. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Yes, many believed on that day, but as those who were appointed to eternal life by God's sovereign love and grace. If none had been appointed by God to eternal life, then none would have believed. It's that simple. Salvation is of the Lord, and predestination punctuates that truth in a powerful way. So predestination, dear ones, is a biblical doctrine. But it's not just a biblical doctrine. It's a comforting doctrine. It's a comforting doctrine because we know who is ultimately in control. You don't need to worry about the government You may need to worry about the government taking away freedoms, perhaps taking away your very life. But you never have to worry about the government taking away your salvation. 
or anyone else. What a blessing. What an encouragement. What a confidence builder in this world as the world turns against historic biblical Christianity. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a comfort that is. Take my homes, take my cars, take all that I love in this life, but you can never take away Christ. Predestination is a comforting doctrine. It was never intended to be studied or understood in isolation. Predestination is meant to be understood in tandem with God's eternal love, with his effectual calling, with his shepherding care and protection, all secured by his beloved son. It's, it's why we have that, that, um, uh, that golden chain of salvation in verse 30 that we're going to look at next week, God willing. That those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Glorified is in the past tense. It's so sure that it's in the past tense. It's as if it's already happened because in Christ, we are united to him and he has been glorified and we are in him. And so our Glorification is sure. Our place in glory is sure because Christ's place in heaven is sure. Remember, it's those who are foreloved by God that he predestines unto salvation. And it's for those whom he predestines that he sends his son. And it's through his son that his elect are redeemed, kept, and brought home to glory, all to the praise of God's glorious grace. And so it's profoundly comforting to know that in a world of disarray, confusion, and change, God's purpose of election stands unshaken. Our Heavenly Father's hold on us is firm. Because God's foreknowledge and predestination are true, so is the fact that nothing can separate me from God's love in Christ. I don't need to wake up every day wondering if this is the day that God abandons me. If this is the day that I lose my salvation. If this is the day that God stops loving me. Predestination is so comforting because it teaches us that what God starts in our lives, He finishes. And what God purposed in eternity past will be brought to completion in eternity future. We have become so self-absorbed as independent-minded Americans that we, even though we might believe in this doctrine in some measure, do not want to think about it or sing about it very often. I, I have to admit, I, 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 I probably should watch what I say here, but I'll just go ahead and say it. This new hymn that we have is wonderful, but this section on the sovereignty of God is minuscule. I'm looking for hymns to sing. We've got to sing the same hymn two weeks in a row. Oh, Father, you are sovereign. Because there's hardly anything in that section. I guess I need to write to the editors. I went to an old British hymnal in my library. It's this little fat hymnal with like 700 hymns in it with no music, just words. And I, I, I went to the section on the sovereignty of God. And there are all these amazing hymns. Why don't we sing these anymore? I quoted one to you earlier. With this line, safe in the arms of sovereign love, we ever shall remain. 
predestination is not true, neither can that line be true. So we've seen that predestination is biblical, that it's comforting. But verse 29 teaches us something else about predestination. It has a glorious aim. It has an aim. Predestination has a glorious aim. Look at me again in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Beloved, last year, 13 beautiful, bouncing babies were born into this congregation. One of our members described it as a baby tsunami. After each baby was born, it was, of course, not only fun to hear the names of the children, but to look and see who the child favors. Sometimes a baby looks like the father. Sometimes the baby looks like the mother. Sometimes the baby looks like a combination of both. But each child in some way has the look of his or her parents. Beloved, those who are predestined unto salvation are predestined to bear the perfect likeness of God. Not to be a God, to bear the perfect likeness of God. Of course, we were created, weren't we, with God's likeness stamped upon us. We were created with a soul to have fellowship and communion with God. Unlike the animals who do not have souls, we are made with souls and stamped on our souls the image of God that we would have communion with God. We had a, an original righteousness. In Genesis 2.26, it says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. But when Adam rebelled against God and all humanity with him, the likeness or the image of God in us was defaced, shattered, and ruined by sin. Our intellects, our hearts, our wills, our affections, all marred by sin. And that original righteousness and paradise was lost. And we were separated from God. Put out into the wilderness where there are thorns and thistles and suffering. Man was no longer in fellowship with God, but under his wrath and curse, dead in sin and under the crushing demands, impossible crushing demands of the law. What hope would there be for mankind? Well, the answer is the hope of Christ. The hope of God's mercy. God sent his beloved son into the world to restore sinners to fellowship with God. To reconcile us to the Father. And Jesus was no emanation from God or exalted angel. He, as Hebrews 1.3 states, was and is, quote, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his Nature. Jesus is, as Colossians 1.15 states, the image of the invisible God. He is the second Adam, who is the God-man. One person, two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. And so God sent His Son into the world to do that which Adam failed to do and which you and I fail to do every single day. Jesus lived a perfect life under the law. He met all those demands of the law. And then as a perfect law keeper, as a spotless lamb, he died on the cross to pay the debt of our sins. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Jesus paid the wages of our sins on the cross by dying the first and second death. He bore the burning wrath of God for our sakes on the cross. He took the unspeakable strokes of God's justice for our sins and to spare us from an eternity in hell. He went into the grave and then rose on the third day to deliver us from Satan, sin, and the second death. And so, beloved, when we receive him and rest upon him by faith, we receive his forgiveness. And as a gift, his perfect righteousness is put into our account. Our sins nailed to the cross, we bear them no more. We no longer have the guilt of our sins. And his righteousness imputed to us, put in our account, so that now we stand before God, forgiven of all of our sins, and robed in the very righteousness of Jesus. So we're not saved by our good works. We're saved by the works of Christ, given to us and received by faith. And what happens when we are brought into union with Christ is a process begins called sanctification, whereby we are slowly conformed more and more to the image of Christ. The image of God is being remade in us, and we are being remade in the image of Christ. We begin to reflect the holiness of sons, even the Son. Those who are in Christ, therefore, are in a process of spiritual transformation. This is what we were predestined unto. And one day, this process of spiritual and bodily transformation will be complete. Remember what it says in 1 John. One day, you shall see him and you shall be like him. We will bear the image of God fully restored and renovated to perfection. And our bodies will be made new. And so here, once again, the resurrection is referred to. Christ was the firstborn among many brothers, and God's people are the many brothers. Robert Mounts writes that this phrase, firstborn of many brothers, quote, speaks of his priority in time and his primacy of rank. It also implies that there are to be others who will share in this sonship. Christ is the firstborn of many brothers. He was raised up and we shall be raised up too in him unto glory forevermore. God's love, it, his saving love spans back uh, to before time and it spans into eternity for all time. That's the God whom you serve. Not a God who is uncertain. Not a God who may one day let you go. But a God who holds on to you. A God who sent his son to die for you. And so, how do we respond to this? Well, besides reading three or four books on predestination in the next couple of months, to try to get all this straight. And by the way, if you don't have it all straight, that's okay. When the thief on the cross came to know Christ, he hardly knew anything. Can you imagine him standing at the, 
at the, at the pearly gates, and he's asked, why should I let you into heaven? He, and he said, uh, do you know about the doctrine of predestination? No, he would say that I was with Jesus on the cross. I was next to him on the cross, and I believe in him. And he said I could, I could come and be with him forever in paradise. We're not saved by how well we know the doctrine of predestination. We're not saved by our theological or philosophical acumen. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the first application of this text. Put your trust in Christ. Repent of your sin, sins and cling to him by faith. Abide in him. If you've never called upon the name of the Lord for forgiveness and grace and mercy and restored fellowship with God, do it now. Let not another moment pass before you cry out to God for forgiveness and mercy, before you repent of your sins and repent of the way that you have been living and embracing false idols and the gods of this world. Look to Christ. What are you waiting for? God sent his son to die for sinners like us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I love the, the analogy Spurgeon gives that on the door into a relationship with God, it says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And when you walk through the door and you look up at the other side, it says, and you were predestined before the foundation of the world. Just to remind all of us that salvation is of the Lord. We do not do it. We are incapable of doing it. Christ has done it. Our Father sent Him into the world to save us, and the Spirit works in our hearts to bring us to Him. Secondly, I want to encourage you to embrace the doctrine of predestination. Don't reject it. To reject it is to reject the plain teaching of Scripture and to exalt human reason over God's Word. As R.C. Sproul once said, quote, When there's something in the Word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the Word of God, it's with me. Predestination, as Michael Horton's book communicates, puts the amazing back into grace. For grace is not grace if we contribute to our salvation in any way, shape, or form. And what a relief it is that God has done it all in Christ by His Spirit. And I can't unsave myself. This leads to number three. May this encourage us to live a life of growing and grateful obedience. Predestination, if properly understood, shouldn't cultivate laziness or spiritual ineptness, a kind of, well, God's sovereign, so I'm just going to sort of sit back and, and live a worldly life. 
and just sort of follow the flesh. Well, if that's how one responds to that, I would point them to 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourself, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because those who are in Christ, those who, who understand what God has done for them have some measure of gratitude, which leads to some measure of obedience. But not obedience that does anything to add to our salvation, but obedience as a fruit of our salvation. Live a life of growing and grateful obedience in response to this marvelous gospel, which includes predestination. Finally, take comfort that your salvation is secure. The God who predestined you is the same God who is your Father who sent His Son to redeem you, and the same God who called you to Himself, and the same God who declared you justified, and the same God who by His grace is conforming you to the image of His Son, and the same God who will one day bring you home to glory. It's the unbroken chain of salvation that we'll consider more deeply next week. Many things in this world are uncertain, dear believer, but your salvation in Christ is not. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your salvation is not uncertain because God has promised that from the first to the last, He will save you and bring you to glory. Safe in the arms of sovereign love, we ever shall remain, nor shall the rage of earth or hell make thy sure counsel Vain, not one of all the chosen race, but shall to heaven attain. Here they will share abounding grace and there with Jesus reign. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this good news of your predestinating love in Christ for our salvation. We pray, O Lord, that we would take comfort You are a God who is sovereign, who reigns over all and is working out your will according to your purpose for your glory and for the good of your church. Oh, Lord, give us eyes to see your truth and to respond by faith. We pray in Jesus' name.